If you're able, would you stand with me? You can pull out your Bibles if you have them. If you don't, uh, Scripture will be on the screen. Uh, if you do have your Bibles, go to John 4. And we will begin in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When, do, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. It's a mic drop, isn't it? <laughs> you guys can go ahead and be seated. This is God's word. You know, there's a myth in the Bay Area, really in our culture, that certain people go to church or to a building and give their emotions and their affections to God each week or this, this imaginary person. And then there are sensible people who don't worry about those things anymore. And they drink mimosas, take a hike on Mount Diablo, and watch sports. This is a false distinction. Why? Because everybody is a worshiper. Worship is about aligning your energy, your values, your attention, and your affections to which, to that which you desire most. I love what pastor and author Paul Tripp says. He says, you cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's a matter of what or whom we serve. It's not religious people and then people who are reasonable. Everyone's a worshiper. And the problem with the culture and the modern life that you and I live in is that those things that are not divine by nature and only found in the physical inspire a delusion by nature because they cannot deliver what they promise. I love what Philip Yancey says. He says, a society that denies the supernatural usually ends up elevating the natural to supernatural status. You see, in, the, in, this, in our society where there is almost revival-like behavior for our sports team or for the next cause or social cause, the reason for this is the pursuit of meeting a deep desire for the sake of wholeness and being a part of something that is greater than yourself. But the problem with our modern approach is instead of looking vertically, we continue to look horizontally to science and to technology to fix or to mend those deepest desires. I read recently uh, in the Wall Street Journal, there was an op-ed 
uh, written last year, actually, on the decline in happiness for modern people in the U.S. And one of the professors they interviewed said this as his answer when he was talking about the decline of happiness. His answer was for more technology. He says this, technology has the potential to play a greater role in increasing and sustaining well-being. He says, I envision a day when virtual reality and digital interactive characters designed to look and to act like real people will be used to enhance emotional awareness. This is real. There is no length and toxicity that humanity will not go to be fulfilled. And the reality is it's been proven time and time again that, the, that technology is not the answer. In fact, it's the complete opposite. But what they don't see, what they don't see and sometimes what we miss is that we are caught between evil and righteousness, heaven and hell, the cosmic war behind us and behind all of this is at work. But culture has believed that more, the more we advance in science and tech, the less we will desire religion. But I want to argue today that it actually has the opposite effect. And it's drawing us deeper and revealing our need deeper into God. And because this is true, we have to get right what we worship. Otherwise, our hearts will stay on this never-ending horizontal search for more. As a society, I think we're more hungry for God today than ever before. And the scripture said that God has put eternity into our hearts. So that sense of I need more, I need a fulfillment, I need satisfaction, that search for more is actually God placing the ability for you to know I got to look upwards versus straight ahead. We're hardwired for that kind of longing. And therefore, here's kind of the big idea, here's my prayer that we would understand today is that God is committed to satisfying your deepest desires by captivating you with himself. And I can't think, as we're in this journey together in the Gospel of John, in our series is called Conversations with Jesus, I can't think of a better conversation that Jesus has in this Gospel than our passage today to demonstrate God's unrelenting commitment to meet you and to meet me in our deepest wounds, in those unfixable, seemingly unfixable moments to reveal to you and to me the life of heaven that renews and expands our hunger for worship. Jesus enters, and what we're going to see today is that Jesus enters into the shallows of this woman's sins, trauma, and shame, and calls her into the depths of his grace. And he's doing the same today for you. And for me, and that's the good news today. So if you would, if you have your Bibles, go back to John 4. We'll begin in verse 3. It says, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, and he had passed through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Shechem, and near the field of Jacob that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
And and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The first thing I notice here as we read through this passage is that there is no distance that God won't go to call you to himself. See, by the time Jesus makes it to the well and meets the Samaritan woman, he's exhausted. We know this because, number one, he doesn't go to the town with the rest of the disciples to get a quick bite to eat. He stays at this well, and it says he's weird. He's probably tired from day-long day journey of, of ministry and meeting with people and meeting different needs and preaching. And so I picture Jesus on this well probably attempting to take a cat nap. He's tired. And all of a sudden, he hears the footsteps of a woman. And so I, I picture Jesus waking up and, and seeing her. And what we need to know is that in this interaction that Jesus is about to have, it isn't as simple as it's a coincidence that they happen to meet at this well, and now he's going to talk to her. See, remember, Jesus is Jewish. What's the woman? She's Samaritan. After Assyria conquered the northern tribe of Israel in 722 B.C., they had exiled most of, those, of its people. And so um, then in Samaria, they had this sort of mixed population that included Israelites that were left behind uh, and foreign peoples who had relocated to this particular region from other parts of this Assyrian empire. So those groups then intermarried, and that Israelite identity that was in Samaria was lost, and that's how they actually got their name, the Samaritans, right? And they still worshipped at least a version of Yahweh in the scriptures, but because of the divide in nationality between those who were purely Jews and those who were mixed in ethnicity, there grew this deep growth of, or, or barrier of hostility, both socially and politically, among these two people groups. So this conversation is both culturally unaccepted and unexpected. But I can't help but to notice that the God of the universe came down and within his three years of ministry chose to write an entire chapter dedicated to this one woman. There is no distance, no cultural boundary that God won't cross in order to get to you and to me. And he goes on in in verse 10. Jesus answered her. And again, remember, now Jesus is asking, hey, I want a drink. He tells her he's thirsty. And then in verse 10, I imagine she's confused. And then he says in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. So Jesus is asking for a drink. And then he says, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than my father Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up with eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What Jesus is doing is he's using a physical example to explain a spiritual reality. Now, before I move on, I want to show you this because I totally nerded out when I found out that they actually know where Jacob's well is. So it should come on the screen. So this is the actual, I mean, historically proven Jacob's well. I know people that have drinking water from this, which, I mean, come on, right? How? Okay. All right. I think it's cool. All right. So right now, in present day, it's in a church, right? But at the time, it would have been outdoors um, and, you know, the whole community would come and gather, but the reason I show you this is because wells aren't just something you, you have as a community. They're, his, they're of historical importance and significance. This well was a place where women would go to decompress and spend time with other women and, and talking about what's going on in their lives. It was a place for women to come and to relax. It was a source of life for these women. I read uh, in, in some historical articles that even marriages were uh, arranged here. But imagine you're a woman with sexual and relational baggage that more than likely, knowing the community she's living in, are all aware. And rather than this being a source of life, she knows she is shunned by society from this source. And in that culture, even many devout Jewish men would have not allowed themselves to be alone with a woman. It was, it was unavoid, if it was unavoidable, they would at least certainly not get into a conversation with her. So Jesus is crossing a ton of boundaries having this conversation with this woman. I love what N.T. Wright says. He says, the six hour is about noon, and the normal time for women to visit the well, set as it was at some distance from the town, would have been a cooler time of day. Most likely first thing in the morning or late in the afternoon. This woman has come at the time when she is least likely to meet anyone. At least anyone who knows her, her past, her immoral lifestyle. The last thing she would want is to rub shoulders with other women of the town and they would feel the same about her. So here he is. This woman meets with Jesus, shame-written and in guilt. It's an incredible picture of the life that God is inviting us into today. Because in all the scriptures, we see the same promise of God being living water and offering that same offer that quenches the desire of the human heart and the human soul. It says, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water from. Where do you get this living water from, she asked. Are you greater than my father Jacob? He 
Here's the amazing picture is what she does in verse 12. Are you greater than my father Jacob? That question she asks, immediately what she's doing is she's connecting herself to the descendants of Israel, the promised people. In other words, the women's identification of Jacob as her ancestor shows the Samaritans believed themselves to be the rightful descendants of Jacob and true Israelites. See, Jesus knows this woman probably has some knowledge, at least of the Pentateuch, or at least some of it, which is the five, first five books of the Old Testament, and knows who she identifies with. And his choice of language here is incredible because we see him drawing her to the greater narrative of Scripture. That phrase, living water, he's not talking about actual water. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. He's pointing her imagination to scriptures like Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away, you shall be written on earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And in Ezekiel 47, the prophet is saying and is describing water flowing from the temple that brings life to whatever it touches. We also see Jesus using this language of living water later in John 7. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what Jesus is on a mission to do, and he's still on a mission to do, is to make her and to make you and me temples of the Holy Spirit that flows from us, the life-giving source of heaven, to everyone and to everything we touch. And that's why every morning my feet hit the ground and I know I'm one step away from messing it up every single time. So I'm asking God, change my heart and my innermost being, give me what you desire so that when I interact with whoever I interact with today, that I would flow with rivers of living water. In other words, that I would be empowered by your spirit. What Jesus wants to do with this woman and what he's still doing today is he's renewing and reordering our desires to meet our deepest heart's needs. You know, I found, I was kind of doing some research and I found this piece of artwork from the 1980s. It's totally, it's got total 80s vibes, doesn't it? Totally. (laughs) So this artwork is by Bruce Nowen. and this artwork is um, what, it's, what it was meant to do, and it still kind of has some significance today, is, is meant to describe the human experience. So you see the words need, dream, hope, desire, and then the two human, human on top. At art shows, as I was reading about it, at art shows, it lights up the two, wor- two different words and then goes dark and then lights up another two words. And he said the inspiration underneath this idea was how our human needs are constantly changing. And I started thinking, man, this is the perfect cultural apologetic, this picture right here. Because the reality is the popular belief of today is that our needs are going to be recycled based on each experience. And thus we need to get out of each moment all we can in order to meet those desires because you're going to need to refill your tank 
tomorrow. In other words, the flashing neon lights or neon words are a cultural commentary that says our deepest desires as humans can never actually be fully satisfied and therefore we need to jump from experience to experience in hopes of filling ourselves up a little more each time. It's the delusion of the flesh. We take our bucket And we go down deep to get our fill. And you're like, well, man, I I don't know if we do this still today. Oh, no, we do. What about the dating apps, right? They're just mechanisms of the heart to meditate our loneliness. What about social media? We reach in and we go deep and we find that we're still thirsty for more. See, here's what's happening is that worships, worshipers seek fulfillment from who or what they worship. And the delusion of the flesh is that maybe this time or this person or when I get this house or that job or I relocate to this place or to that place, that sense of renewal that I'm searching for will finally set in. But for so many of us, we make the mistake of believing that true contentment is something we gain rather than that we are gifted. Worship isn't just a moment, it's a lifestyle. And Jesus is after a renewed worship that leaves us full. And he's offering this woman a gift of grace. And in John 4, verses 16, he goes on. And he goes straight to the heart. He says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband, which in Greek is Andros, and come here. The woman answered him, I I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now that Greek word that you find up there can actually mean man or husband. See, if the woman had five previous husbands who either died or divorced her, she would have had exceeded this traditional limit to only have three husbands, at least within Jewish law. So, however, the words ambiguity suggests that possibly that she had none, that none were actually fought her legal uh, husband, just as her current man, the current man she's with is not her husband. And so what Jesus is doing is he's confronting the false world and false ideas of the heart before he draws her into the newness of life. He's renewing her vision for love. But in order to do that, he needs to confront sin, confront the barrier. What he's going to show her is it doesn't matter if she's stuck five times deep into relationship after relationship after relationship. And what I'm hoping that you will see today, it doesn't matter. I've done this, man, five times or even more, or I feel stuck or unfixable, or I feel like in, in some sense almost unredeemable. And that God is so merciful that today he's going to remove the sin in your life that is corrupting you. And this is what he's doing with the woman at the well. 
is he's saying, I know about your five husbands or men. But my mercy goes so deep that I need to remove what's old in you and gross and corrupting you and not giving you the ability to see me first. And then I need to give you a new heart. And then in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. So you see that confusion, right, of the, of the ethnicities that are, that are mingled here. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor on this mountain in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is nowhere where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He's called Christ. And when he comes, he's going to tell us about all these things. So he's, she's kind of like, hey, I get it. I know he's coming. Let's move on. And Jesus, as I said earlier, drops the mic and he says, I who speak to you am You know, as I mentioned earlier, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdoms of Israel took over uh, Samaria and forced them into exile. And the Samaritans only accepted parts of the Old Testament. They mixed a little bit of paganism um, and then really blended uh, some other religions together. And they rejected a lot of the historical uh, books that we find in the Old Testament and the Psalms as well, especially those that mention David or anything to do with Jerusalem because they refused to participate in any of that. And so they set up this new temple on this new mountain, this new uh, Worship system, which is the mountain that this, this woman is referring to. So they worship on Jerusalem, and they worship over here. And she's saying, no, we worship here, you worship there. Later on, you read in history that um, when uh, King Alexander controlled Palestine, that they made the Samaria, the Samaria one of their bases because they knew that they would get some anti-Jerusalem sympathizers um, in the mix. And then we see 100 years later when they had their chance, uh, Jerusalem or Israel came and burnt the temple down. And all, in other words, there is deep, deep hostility among the Samaritans and the Jews. But there's also a sense that this woman and their people are trying to figure out this new identity. Who they are because that has been so dismantled in, in, in the midst of exile. They created a worship system based upon their own preferences and biases of the truth of Yahweh. And what Jesus is revealing to her is that your created system of worship isn't working. Her people go up the mountain and they come down and they need more. She's stuck in a false theology of God. 
it's, it's not about being sincere. Worship isn't about being sincere. I mean, turn on the news, guys, and we see sincere people fighting for their cause, fighting for what they believe in. We can't sincerely make our way to God, but he does, what he does is he finds those places of air and brings a violent renewal to our old patterns of worship. I love what Jackie Hill Perry says, another author and speaker. Man, it's so beautiful. I love it. She says, could it be, and of course, if you know her story, she comes from quite a a dark past. And she says, could it be that God would not have me going about the rest of my life believing that these lesser forms of love were the real thing? Perhaps this love he filled to the brim with was pouring over into his dealings with me. And perhaps this love was compelling him on the basis of grace and undeserved love to help me see that every person, place, or thing that I loved more than him could not keep its promise to love me eternally. He wants to reveal what is stopping you from knowing him deeply. So he's dealing with the bad theology, the false theology, and it's going to result in true worship. This is why Jesus says to the woman, you worship what you know, what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is for the Jews. Then he says, the hour is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and that God the Father is seeking people to worship him because God is spirit and those who worship him worship in spirit and in truth. When Jesus says spirit, Jesus is saying the true worshipers are God of God are those ones that will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with rivers of living water flowing from them. It's not about a place of worship. It's about who we worship. Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul says, for we are the circumcision. And he's not talking about physical circumcision. Can I get an amen, men? But he says, who worship by the spirit of God in the glory of Christ in Jesus, or in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. He's referring to a spiritual circumcision of the heart where God is going to undo the old and put in the new. In Romans 2, the Apostle Paul says sort of the same thing, but he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical, but a Jew is inwardly, and a circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, in order for us to worship in spirit and in truth, we need a heart transformation. We need a new heart in order for us to be able to change our desires and to see who God truly is, the one that we see Yahweh revealed in Scripture. Paul later would argue that Abraham was considered righteous before he was physically circumcised. Again, worship is a matter of the heart. And in order to see God, the Spirit of God needs to confront what makes you and I blind, the false narratives about God in order to transform you and me in our innermost being. 
And then he says, so he says, you got to worship in spirit. And then he says, in truth. And what he's saying there is that heart, the heart change that exchanges these false perceptions of God that we carry. And by his spirit, he then enables and reorders our affections to worship the God of the scriptures. So he's going to fill us with living water, the Holy Spirit. He's going to correct our theology about who God is. And then the true worshipers will arise. We see this in the text because the woman has this realization. She's saying, wait, wait, wait. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. In other words, you're, you're talking Messiah language here. I know he's supposed to come. And when he does, he'll tell me all these good things. What she sees after Jesus, again, has that mic drive moment, I who speak to you am he, is that God is committed to satisfying your deepest desires by captivating you with himself. She has that moment of, wait, are you the one? See, you and I cannot be free from sin or the hunt for satisfaction until we meet the Savior. And on that day, she did. And what this tells us is that God is going to meet you in your deepest, darkest moments, in your deepest wounds to bring us to the life of heaven. He isn't making worshipers. We already are that. He's on a mission to make true or renewed worshipers. And Jesus is asking you and me today, he's asking us to drop what we think will fill us instead of him and trust him for true contentment. Because so many of us have the well and we go and we dig in deep and we pour again and we look again, we do it again, we drink again, we meet that person again, we say that thing again and we we hope that it's going to fulfill us, but it never actually does. And listen, in those seemingly unfixable, unredeemable moments in life where we find that's exactly where you will find Jesus sitting at the well of your life. He wants to bring us in and he wants to connect you to the Father. How many of you know those moments? If you're coming in here today and you're saying, oh, man, I've messed up more than five times, that's for sure. Am I fixable? I know what it feels like to, be unf- to feel unfixable. But in the, in the, in the tears and in the, the shame and the guilt, I look up. And there Jesus is, sitting at the well of my life and offering me to come in. And offering you and me a water that can quench what, guys, what our heart truly desires. We can't find it on our own. King David knew this. If you've been in the church for a while, maybe you've heard this story, but long story short, King David, he's a man after God's own heart, but later in the scriptures we read that he slept with another man's wife and then they had a child. 
And after messing up big time, I mean big time, because what he does later is he tries to cover his sin up by killing that man, that woman's husband. And he doesn't go off and he doesn't go on and create some system of worship that, you know, meets some shallow need of feeling better about himself. Or he doesn't go and medicate his guilt and his shame. In Psalm 51, 4, we see a seemingly unfixable man or a broken man who knows the mercy of God and runs straight back towards it. And in 51, verse 4 of the Psalms, he says, oh God, create in me a clean heart. In other words, God, I am so, so far gone. I need you to come in, reorder my loves, and that my innermost being, my affections and my thoughts and my actions and how I view life would be a reflection of you. Change the way I do things. Change the way I think. And then he says this. He knows that he needs, what he needs most is to drink from the well of living water. And that's why he says next, oh God, renew a right spirit within me. In other words, correct my theology and my false narratives and move me closer and back to your heart, oh God. And the invitation for you and for me today is that God renews our worship by giving us a new heart. Again, that our inner being, we can now say no to sin and yes to God. And maybe Jesus is at the well of your life right now and he's calling you in. And I want to remind you that God is committed to satisfying your deepest desires by captivating you with himself. We see this woman captivated by the words of Jesus, and he's doing the same for you and for me today. A couple next steps before we get into what we do every week with communion, but a couple next steps. First is, what is keeping you from worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Is there something, is there a barrier between you worshiping God in spirit and in truth? What are the false ideas about God that you're holding on to? One idea is to look at what gets your attention and your affection. What are you thinking about on a daily basis? What drives your energy or your thought process or what you do during the day? Look at those things and you might identify what has taken place of you worshiping God in spirit or in truth. Or maybe you're like the Samaritan woman. Do you need rivers of living water today? Are you stuck in sins five times over? And the well is so deep, you keep drawing from it, but it just never satisfies. Maybe today's the day for you to take the invitation like this woman does and to follow Jesus. And you'll have a moment to talk to someone about what that could look like later on in our service today. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into Communion, Father, we thank you for wells of living water that you have promised to us. God, you don't leave us in the mess, in the shame, in the trauma, in the guilt. 
but you call us out. You do confront sin, but you call us into something far better. So God, I pray whether for Jesus followers or for those who would say, I need to follow Jesus today. I want to start following Jesus today. Would you fill us with living water today, God? Remind us that you are the only source of life and true contentment. And forgive us when we look outward and into other mountains of worship. And forget that you're sitting at the well of our life today, calling us in. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.